I love it when the timing works out like that with a song before just ends right before service starts. It's perfect. Well, let's stand and begin our time as we always do by hearing from God's word. He speaks and we respond from Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Let us sing with our souls today. The Lord hears it. He is worthy of our praise. So let us worship him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And let us encourage one another all the more and rejoice in our great God and King. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul, worship his holy name, and sing like never before, oh my soul, I'll worship your holy name. He is faithful. Oh 
singing like never before these days as we try to tune our hearts to sing his praise and restrain our voices to honor our earthly authorities, which is a good thing. Welcome to this gathering of Desert Springs Church. This is an outpost of the kingdom of heaven, and we are here in the name of our King, Jesus, to the worship of the Father and by the help of the Spirit. We are here to worship and to worship in spirit and in truth. And I'm glad that you are here. It is good to see your eyes this morning. My name is Drew. I'm the music pastor here. If you're a guest visiting with us, we are thankful for you, for your presence here, and we want to answer any questions that you have. You can email us, info at dseabq.com. If you're here today in the room and after the service you'd like to talk to a pastor, we'll have somebody out in the courtyard. They would love to meet you greet you and help you uh, know Jesus, help you to have a Bible if you don't have one, and help you to connect to the life of our church in any way that we can. Well, as I mentioned, our earthly authorities, we have petitioned our governor to allow us to sing, and we heard some positive feedback this week from the governor's office. They are considering lifting that restriction. So that is a reason for rejoicing and giving thanks to our God who who has the, uh, the hearts of kings in his hands, so we can trust him in this. So moving forward, tomorrow afternoon, I'm on a conference call with the governor's office as a part of uh, maybe six, seven other uh, representatives from houses of worship from around the state. So pray for me as I'm on that call with the governor's office to specifically discuss singing in church. Uh, pray that I would have wisdom, that my words would be seasoned with grace and that the Lord would show us favor and allow us, uh, and allow us to sing together soon by his grace for his glory. So as you're praying now and praying tomorrow, uh, so let us pray together. Lord, we thank you. You are our rock, our fortress, and our deliverer. Let us remember your mercy today, for you are gracious and compassionate. We thank you for calling us to faith in Christ for putting your spirit within us, for giving us the mind of Christ, for gathering us into your church. We thank you, Lord, for extending your grace to us, for calling us to a life of gratitude, not of grumbling, and for calling us to service in your kingdom. Would you now satisfy the thirsty, fill the hungry with good things, heal the afflicted, grant patience for trials, and peace for life's storms. We know that in any time of need, when we do battle with the forces of evil, you are our fortress. You hide us and protect us. And the word that endures forever will fight for us. So guide us now, bless this time, all that takes place in our, in our songs, in our sermons, in our scripture reading. For your glory and for our good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one part of what we do every time we come together is to rehearse 
the truths of our faith. And historic confessions and creeds are an excellent way for us to do that. So let's stand and hear from the Apostles' Creed. It says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy, true Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And if you believe those things, say amen. Amen. Well, let us rejoice in the firm foundation we have in Christ, in his work, and in his word. We can clap together and worship. Consider this. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? Fear not, fear not, I am with thee, oh, be not dismayed, for I am your God, and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous omnipotent hand. He is with us when through the deep waters I call thee to go. The rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be near thee, thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to be thy deepest distress. set us free from our captivity your hand is strong to save 
You split the raging sea. You crushed our enemies. Your hand is strong to save. The Lord our God is mighty in battle. We are not afraid. His hand upholds us through our trials. Our God is strong to save. This desert place, we're carried by your grace. Your hand is strong to save. When in the promised land, we'll see your perfect plan. Your hand is strong to save. Clap your hands. You can be seated. Good morning. My name is Chase Jacobs. I'm the Minister of Theological Training here at Desert Springs Church. Would you pray with me? Lord, you are strong. Because of your strength and because of our weakness, we turn to you in prayer. Even as we will soon turn this morning to think about your command from the book of Jude that we keep ourselves in your love by building ourselves up in our most holy faith and by praying in the Holy Spirit, Lord, even then we remind ourselves of our weakness and that we are entirely dependent on you and your strength every step of the way. And so God, we pray 
but not just for our own church, Lord. We want, we want to pray for your church around the world that it would be built up. We want to see the gospel speed ahead and be honored everywhere. We pray that your saints everywhere would be kept until the day that you come again. So Lord, in that we pray for the church in North Africa. God, we pray, would you build up your church there? Would you cause the gospel to ring out from our brothers and sisters there? Some of them we know, but many of them we don't. God, would you give your church their strength? Would you give them boldness? Would you give them obedience? And would you give them opportunities to proclaim Christ crucified? And Lord, would you work by your spirit through that preaching to lead Muslims to repentance and to salvation in the Son of God? And God, we pray for the church in Guatemala and all around Central and South America. Lord, would you please continue to train up faithful pastors and elders there who can ably preach the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Lord, would you please keep and guard the church from error and sin? And Lord, would you even send out missionaries from Latin America all around the world to start new churches and preach the gospel? Lord, we pray for the church in our own city. We thank you for Calvary Church and for Hoffmantown Church and for Sagebrush Church. Lord, we thank you for all of the other churches that preach the true gospel, and we pray that you would guard them. Would you, we pray that you would help them to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Lord, would you keep them from growing slack or weak? Would you guard them from drifting into false teaching or even into lukewarmness? Lord, build them up. We pray for these other churches in our city. Would you give them gospel success? Would you give them gospel growth, even that that means that our church doesn't grow the way we think that it should? Lord, we are all your church, and we pray for unity and that you would help us to all grow into maturity. God, we ask for favor with our governing authorities, as we mentioned this morning, Lord, that we'll keep on meeting with them. We're going to keep on discussing with them our request that they lift this restriction on our being able to sing as a congregation. Lord, we pray that you would, because you hold the heart of the king in your hand and you turn it whichever way that you wish, God, that you would turn the hearts of our leaders into to wisdom and to righteousness and to justice as you define it. God, would you please help those of us who are under their authority to be submissive and to be humble and to give honor where honor is due. And lastly, Lord, as we turn to hear your word this morning, would you please use it as a means of grace to convict us of sin, to remind us of our salvation and of our forgiveness, and to empower us to live lives that glorify you in godliness and in good works. God, I ask that you would build each of us up this morning in our most holy faith so that we can contend by your help for that faith once for all delivered to us, your saints, for your name's sake. Amen. Let us stand and continue in prayer through song. Take your truth, plant it deep. 
turn in your Bible to the book of Jude. The book of Jude. If you don't know where Jude is, Revelation is the very last book in your Bible. If you go one page before the book of Revelation, you are in the book of Jude. Jude is a very small, often overlooked letter in the New Testament, but it is dense and rich, and God has a lot to say to us from the book of Jude. So we'll be in the book of Jude both this Sunday and next Sunday. This morning we're just going to read, they don't even call Jude chapter 1 because there's just Jude. So we're just going to read Jude 1 to 16. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! 
For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. You pray with me. Lord, there is a lot here for us this morning, and I pray that you would speak to us by your word, that you would help everything that I say to be true, and that you would help everything that we think about to be right and to honor you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The title of this sermon is Know Your Enemy. You've probably heard that phrase before. It's one of the most famous dictums from Sun Tzu's Art of War, which is a military handbook written in China around the 5th century BC. Know your enemy. The more you know about their strength, where they are positioned, what are their go-to strategies, the better prepared you will be and the better your chances of success. The same way, the less you know about the enemy, the more ignorant you are, the more likely you are to be defeated. In many ways, you can think of the book of Jude as something like an intelligence report. The writer is giving us a detailed description of certain enemies who are attacking and endangering the church. And so in this way, Jude is helpful for us because it helps us to know our enemy so that we ourselves are better equipped to fight or to contend for the faith. Jude is a short book. We almost read the whole thing just now. You could read it all at once, but it does break up nicely into two parts. Our passage today is all about our enemy, knowing our enemy. It begins in verses 1 to 4 with an urgent appeal to the church that they would contend for the faith against these enemies. And then the bulk of this letter is dedicated in verses 5 to 16 to a detailed condemnation of those enemies. What we'll see then next week is the major division where Jude shifts from talking negatively about these enemies to talking positively to the church, exhorting them to fulfill the command to contend for the faith, or as he will say in verse 21, to keep themselves in the love of God. So that's where we're going to be going these two weeks, and we'll start right here in the introduction, verses 1 to 4, an urgent appeal. And it's good for us to begin at the beginning because this is actually really interesting In verse 1, we see that this letter is from a man named Jude, or that could be Judas. He describes himself as a bondservant of Jesus, so that means that Jesus is his master. And then he introduces himself also as the brother, the biological brother of a man called James. 
Now we know who James is. James was a prominent leader of the church in Jerusalem. So when Jude says that he is James's brother, he knows that everybody else knows who he is talking about. James is also the author of the New Testament book of James. And James is also the half-brother of Jesus Christ himself. Did you know that? The Bible tells us that Jesus actually had at least four brothers, and it names some of them, and it names James and Jude, or Judas, specifically. The Bible also says that Jesus had two little sisters. And we believe, like we just confessed, that Jesus was incarnate by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So God is Jesus' father, but after Mary had Jesus, she still married Joseph, and they still had kids. And those are the kids that the Gospels tell us about. But what's really interesting is the Gospels tell us that Jesus' own family didn't believe who Jesus said he was. Mark chapter 3 tells us that Jesus' family thought he was out of his mind for preaching what he was preaching to the large crowds that had gathered around him. And John chapter 7 verse 5 says, not even his own brothers believed in him. And we don't know how this played out, but we do know that at some point, between John chapter 7 verse 5 and the writing of this letter, Jude had become completely convinced that his big brother was the Lord of the universe and his Lord. I think this is, this is neat. This is just a good apologetic for the Christian faith. This stands out to me a lot because I have two younger brothers. And I know that there is nothing that I could do in a million years that would ever persuade them to give me any kind of worship or devotion. But that's what Jude is doing. Because as we confessed, Jesus died. And then three days later, he rose again from the dead. And he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And Jude knows that. And that'll do it. That's enough for Jude to believe. So when he writes this letter, it's like he doesn't even consider his biological relationship to Jesus as worth noting. All he mentions is that he is Jesus' servant. And James introduces his letter the same way. So that's who writes the letter, Jude the brother of James, the brother of Jesus. But we don't know exactly who he's writing to besides that they are Christians. Based on the content of what's in the letter, we can probably assume that these Christians are Jewish Christians. They had grown up in the Jewish faith and had converted to Christianity. Well, why do we think that? Well, he just fills this book with references from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew scriptures, and from Hebrew literature. So, so clearly these people are familiar with the Jewish faith. But beyond that, we don't, we don't really know who he wrote this letter to, besides that he designates them as who they are in Christ. Called by God, in verse 1. Loved in God. And as those who are kept, or as those who have been placed under guard and have been and are continue to be guarded by Jesus Christ. That's his audience. And that's us too, Amen if we have believed in Jesus. So in verse 2, Jude greets them with a fond blessing that mercy, peace, and love would increase among them, and then he gets to business. There's not an extended benediction or a prayer like is customary. You would be familiar with that if you've read other New Testament epistles. He just cuts all of that out, and he gets right to the point because this is urgent. In verse 3, he says, you know, I wanted, I wanted to write to you, 
I wanted to write to you maybe a longer treatise on how great the gospel is and how good God is for saving all of us together, but, but I couldn't. Instead, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. As I said, contend means to fight, to take up the fight for the faith. Note it's not faith. They're not fighting for belief. They're fighting for the faith, which is the content of all that we as Christians believe. The faith is the way the New Testament describes the body of doctrine that constitutes the Christian religion. It was what we summarized in the Apostles' Creed. Everything that the Old Testament's taught about God and about our salvation that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, that was preached by the apostles and then was written down perfectly under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. That's the faith. And Jude says that that faith was delivered once and for everyone at all times. The faith doesn't change, it doesn't get added to, it does not develop, it's the faith. But the faith is more than just a body of doctrine. The faith is more than just a systematic theology. The the faith is also faithfulness that flows out of that doctrine. And it's that faith that's under threat in this church. Jude writes in verse 4, certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is the enemy. Certain people have crept in. They're creepers. These creepers have come into the church saying that they're Christians, but they are teaching and living something that is contrary to the faith that's once for all delivered to the saints. Now we want to know, what, what is it that they're teaching? What is the body of their doctrine? Jude doesn't really give us a whole lot of details. We see that there's something about visions or dreams. There's a lot of talk about angels, but besides that, he doesn't really get into it. I think verse 4 gets to the heart of their false theology. They have perverted the grace of our God into sensuality. That word sensuality, you could translate it a number of different ways. You could translate it immorality. I think maybe the best way to translate it would be licentiousness. You know what licentiousness means? This is really important. When it comes to the gospel, when it comes to our faith, there's really two errors that you can fall into. You can think about it like two big cliffs on either side of a narrow path that we're trying to stay on. Now, one error is what we call legalism. Legalism is the the belief that we are saved by our good works, that our good behavior is what saves us. So legalism sounds like, if I were to die tonight, I know that I would go to heaven because I have been a good person. That's legalism. Legalism also sounds like God could never love me because I have done too many things wrong. In both of those, our focus is on what? On our behavior, on our works, whether good or bad. But the gospel is focused on God and God's grace to sinners. Amen? But the cliff on the other side is licentiousness. 
And licentiousness is just the opposite of legalism. If legalism says, I'm saved by my good works, licentiousness says, I'm saved so my good works don't matter. Licentiousness sounds like, I'm a sinner and I'm always going to be a sinner. Not even worth trying to not sin, but I'm saved by grace. That's not the gospel either. What does Jude say? That is a perversion of the grace of God into sensuality. It's using God's grace as an excuse to sin and keep on sinning and to disobey God who you think has shown you grace. That's why Jude says in verse 4, it is a denial of Jesus as our master and Lord. I think many people are quick to claim Jesus as their savior. Yeah, Jesus died for me. I'm good. Me and God are good. But they don't acknowledge Jesus as their Lord, who has authority over their life and can command their life, directs their life. I think many people are quick to say, Jesus loves me. But do you love Jesus? Because Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And we have to get the order right in this, okay? We are not saved by keeping God's commandments. That's the point. We cannot keep God's commandments. All of us have failed one way or another to keep God's commandments. And so if we are trying to work our way up to God, we will never get there. None of us will ever be good enough or obedient enough. We just can't. That's why the gospel is that God came down to us. God came down to us as Jesus, incarnate of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, who lived a perfect life, keeping God's commands where we could not. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified. He died the death that we deserve to die for our disobedience. And he was buried. But Jesus didn't die for our sins so that we could just keep on sinning. Jesus died for our sins so that we could be freed from sin. So that we could finally do what we had been trying and failing to do all along. That we could finally obey God's commandments. That is the point that Jesus came to free us from our bondage to sin. So that by the Holy Spirit that he gives to us, we might follow his example to the glory of the Father. This is the point of Romans chapter 6. This is Paul's argument where he raises the same question. Since we're saved by grace, should we just continue to sin so that grace may abound? What does he say? By no means. No way. How can we who died to sin still live in it? It just is incompatible. Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Paul writes, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's good news that we couldn't keep God's commands, but now we can. We can walk in a new kind of life, and that's what real Christians do. Not perfectly, We know that we will sin and we will still struggle with sin, that our sanctification is a process. But the point of Jude is that real Christians do not treat sin 
with this blatant attitude of licentiousness that uses God's grace as an excuse or as a cover-up to just go on and keep on sinning. That's blasphemy. That's another gospel, which is to say that it is no gospel, which is to say that if you do not believe that, you're going to hell. That's why Jude's letter is so urgent. We have to contend for the true faith. We have to combat the error of licentiousness, but false gospels are tricky, aren't they? They sound good. They even sound biblical. That's why it's good to remember another one of Sun Tzu's famous phrases from the art of war. All warfare is based on deception. Your enemies don't announce themselves, do they? They're creepers. Verse 12, he says, they're hidden reefs. They're like sharp rocks that are just underneath the surface of the water. You can't see them, and so you need to steer as far away from them as you can because if you hit them, they will shipwreck you. This is what Jesus in Matthew 7 calls wolves in sheep's clothing. These false teachers look like Christians. They talk like Christians, but really they are inwardly ravenous wolves. They will devour you. They want to gain from you. They want to hurt you. They want to kill you. And so the question is, how do you know what the wolves are? How do you know our enemy? That's why Jude writes this letter. That's why he spends verses 5 to 16 in a detailed condemnation, helping us get a better picture of these false teachers and their lives. I think this is so interesting. Jude says that they're teachers. He calls them shepherds. But he doesn't get into what they're teaching. What does he do? He focuses on their behavior. Because the faith and faithfulness cannot be separated. So this is, again, like what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, that a tree is known by its fruit. And so he, Jude is going to list their bad fruit so that we can be on guard for it. Now, before we get into the specifics of verses 5 to 16, let me, make, let me step back and make some broader applications or observations about this text, because right around verse 5 is where Jude gets weird, right? If you're familiar with Jude at all, you're probably familiar with stuff around chapters 3, or verses 3 and 4, and then the end. But the big part in the middle gets kind of crazy. You're like, I can track all the way to about verse 5, and then I'm like, what is he talking about? But what Jude is doing is actually really interesting, because rather than just list off all of the bad qualities kind of in a, in a list form, He's going to give us six, six references to the Old Testament in quick succession that are going to kind of paint a picture of what these false teachers are doing. Every one of these references comes either from the book of Genesis or the book of Numbers. And what's so interesting about this is that Jude just assumes the audience that he's writing to knows exactly what he's talking about. In verse 5, he says, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it. Again, this is because these are Jewish Christians. They had spent their whole lives steeped in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible. They had a a kind of biblical literacy that, frankly, in our culture, we just don't have. And so we're at a deficit because Jude can just walk up to these guys and say, hey, these false teachers, they are falling into Balaam's error. And then everybody's like, oh, because they get it. But I wonder if 
all that stood between victory and success for you was your knowledge of the book of Numbers, how would you do? This is a great encouragement for us to just keep on studying, to keep on steeping ourselves in the Bible, to, becoming, to become familiar with the Bible. Because don't you want to be at that point where you can read Jude and he's making these references and you don't even have to think about it? Because you know what God's word says. It is just steeped into your bones, into your being. That's how we contend for the faith, is to know what the faith is, to know what this teaching is. That's how we can discern what is true and false error, because we know what God has said. He's revealed it to us, and we're familiar with it. But what's really interesting about the book of Jude is not only that he makes these references to the Bible, but he also makes references to two stories that aren't in the Bible, And this confuses people, and this can trip people up. Maybe you didn't even notice this, but that whole thing about the archangel Michael fighting against Satan over the body of Moses, that's not in the Bible. Neither is the part in verses 14 and 15 where he says Enoch gives a prophecy. Now, Michael is real, Satan is real, Enoch is real. He is mentioned in the book of Genesis, but we don't have any of what Jude is talking about here. So what is going on? Jude is referencing two popular books that were written before Jesus was born that that the Jewish community cherished and studied. Now, this, this bothers people sometimes. Why is Jude quoting these things? But maybe it will help for me to just say this would be no different than if I quoted to you a commentary on the book of Jude. If I said, D.A. Carson said this about this verse, or Greg Beale said this about this passage, you would say, oh, okay, he's going to a helpful book that's outside of the Bible, and he's using that book to make his argument, but he doesn't think that that's on the same level of authority as the Bible. This is just a commentary on what he's talking about. That's what these books were. They were popular, ancient Jewish commentaries. Now, they were written in a different genre, They have a lot of stuff in them that that we would find mysterious and unhelpful at this point. But for Jude and his audience, this was a good book. This was a helpful book. And what do we do with that? I think we as Christians, we just need to have a place for helpful books as we contend for the faith. My wife made a great observation as we were talking about this, that Jude has a ratio of three to one when it comes to Bible references to commentaries. And I think we as Christians should spend a lot more time in the Bible than we're spending in books outside of the Bible. But I think it's right for us to benefit from men that have commented on and studied and meditated on the Bible and written good books about it. That's why we have a bookstore right out there. And I think one of the ways that you can contend for the faith is to read good books about the faith, just like this audience is in the book of Jude. So that's what Jude is doing in verses 5 to 16. He's using these Old Testament references and these extra-biblical references to build an argument. So what is his argument? What is the picture that emerges of these false teachers as you take all of these references together? Well, for one, we see that these false teachers are unbelieving. They're unbelieving like the Israelites of the Exodus generation. And did you see what Jude says about those Israelites? that Jesus saved them out of Egypt. Isn't that amazing? Jude says his big brother is the God of the Old Testament that saved Israel out of Egypt. 
But his point is that these false teachers are unbelieving like that generation that were brought out of Egypt and immediately started grumbling and quarreling with God. In fact, he calls them grumblers in verse 16 and malcontents. They're not submissive. They are bad followers. That's what these false teachers are. In verse 8, he goes on to call them outright rebellious. He says they reject authority, spiritual authority, probably earthly authority. He says they're like the angels in Genesis 6 who disobeyed God and left their designated place to commit sexual immorality with the daughters of men. He says they're likewise like the men of Sodom and Gomorrah who committed sexual immorality against God's ordained design. Verse 11 references Cain who walked in the line of the serpent, murdered his brother, and then went off to build a city for his own perverse glory. It references Balaam who tried to curse God's people for a prophet and then led the people into idolatry and sexual sin. He references Korah, who in Numbers 16 instigated a rebellion amongst God's people to try and overthrow the priestly authority of Moses and Aaron. These teachers are arrogant. They are greedy. They are manipulative. They are blasphemous. Verse 10 says that they are like unreasoning animals acting instinctively. They're like so many today who say that if it feels right, it must be right without any concern for what God says actually is right. They have made themselves their own authority. And perhaps most of all these teachers are dangerous. You hear all the scary language that Jude uses to describe these guys. They are hidden reefs. They are crashing waves. They're bad shepherds that will take advantage of the sheep to feed themselves. In many of the references Jude uses, it's hard not to pick up on a demonic or satanic theme. Like these enemies of the church have acting behind them, our great enemy, whose only desire is to, to steal and to kill and to destroy. Maybe you picked up on this, but Jude's favorite word to describe these false teachers is ungodly. And that doesn't mean like atheists, like they have come to the intellectual decision that God does not exist. It means that they live their lives like God does not exist. They live their lives without reference to God, without desiring to follow or obey God, even as they preach God's grace. Verse 16 says, instead, they follow their own sinful desires. But these desires are not foreign to us, are they? False teachers are not dangerous, they're not persuasive because they're teaching things that are hard or unattractive. False teachers are teaching exactly what we want to hear. Which one of us is not tempted by sexual immorality? Who hasn't been tempted to greed and financial gain? Who among us isn't struggling to submit and to honor our authorities right now? I know I am. I know I've been prone to grumbling, to rebelliousness. It's interesting to me that in America, we're very familiar with the phrase, know your enemy. But in China, they still quote the whole thing. You know what the whole thing says? Know your enemy and know yourself. That's where success is. That's why Jude is helpful, because as we learn about these false teachers and their sin and their sinful behaviors, it can hold our sinful desires up to us for reflection. 
Because one of the ways that we can contend for the faith is to realize that we are prone to the same sinful desires. We need to know ourselves and that sometimes we can be our own worst enemy. We need to do what Jude says at the end of the letter in verse 23, to hate even the garment stained by the flesh. We need to be on guard for our sin. We need to hate our sin and we need to confess our sin both to God and to one another. As Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 6, we need to seek to put to death what is earthly in us. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because, Paul says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And that's really the big idea with every one of these Old Testament references that Jude makes. Every one of these references ends with that person or group being destroyed by God. The Exodus generation all died in the wilderness without entering into the promised land. The angels have been kept in eternal chains of gloomy darkness until the day of judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah got nuked. Cain was banished. Balaam was put to death. That's why verse 11 says, woe to them. And that's why this whole section ends with a prophecy from Enoch, which is really just a mishmash of Old Testament verses together that say, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. It's exactly what we read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, isn't it? Paul writes, Indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. It would be a good exercise for you to maybe look up all of these references that Jude is making in these verses and just go read them in the Old Testament. It wouldn't take you very long in Genesis and in Numbers. I did that this week and when I went to Numbers 16 where it talks about the story of Korah's rebellion, there was a detail that really stood out that I think Jude has in mind here. If you don't know this story, Korah was one of the Levites one of the priestly tribe of Israel, but he was not content to have Moses and Aaron in authority above them. He thought that he was just as good as they were, and what right do they have to tell me what to do? And so he instigates a rebellion amongst his family, and they want to overthrow Moses and Aaron, and God will have nothing to do with it. That is God's design. That is God's order. He has put them in authority there And so God tells Moses, I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to consume them. And everybody needs to watch out. 
And so Moses does what a good leader would do. He grabs all of the other elders of Israel and they run to the congregation screaming, depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. And those who followed Moses listened. They repented. They turned and ran away as fast as they could. And then the earth started to shake. And the ground opened up right underneath where they had been standing. And fire went out from the presence of God and consumed all of those rebellious Israelites. And they fell into the earth and the earth covered them up and they were never seen again. Numbers says that 15,000 people died in Korah's rebellion. Have you believed in Jesus? If you haven't, then that is just a small picture of the wrath that will come that awaits all of those who have refused to walk on the true path of the gospel and to obey Jesus as their Lord. Jesus will come one day with his angels to inflict judgment on all the ungodly, on all of those, whether they're in church or not, who live without reference to God. But another one of Jude's favorite words in this letter is mercy. You should go through this letter on your own and circle all of the times that Jude uses the word mercy. God has shown us mercy in Jesus Christ. If we confess our sins, if we repent and believe in Jesus, not only as our Savior, but also as our Lord, then the wrath that we all deserve for our sin against God is satisfied on the cross. Jesus suffered it himself. He died. He was laid in the ground, and the ground covered him up so that you could be spared so that you could have eternal life. If you haven't believed in Jesus, believe in him and you will be saved from the wrath to come. And if you have believed in Jesus, then here's the point. Listen to Jude the way those faithful Israelites listened to Moses. Jude is running to you and saying, depart, please, from wicked men and don't touch anything of theirs, lest you be swept away by their sin. Jude is telling us that we need to take sin seriously, and we need to flee from it. We need to know our enemy, and we need to know ourself. So do not harbor in your heart or in your life any kind of secret sin. Don't treat sin lightly. Don't think, well, this is okay. This will be fine. This isn't going to hurt anybody. It's really not that big a deal. It is a big deal. If you let that continue, you might get swept away. No, we need to confess our sins. We need to hate our sins. We need to get help with our sins so that we can run away from it, that we can have nothing to do with it. Don't put yourself into a situation where you know that you are likely to sin. Don't put yourself into a situation where you know yourself and you know this puts an undue temptation on me. This makes me more likely to sin. Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. 
Okay, it doesn't matter how good you think it might be. If it is at all a chance for you to sin, then just cut it off because it's better for you to go into heaven with one hand than to have both of them and go into hell. That's what taking sin seriously looks like. And it means to flee from all of those who might lead you into sin. Bad company corrupts good character. And if we know people, even if they are in the church, that are sinning in Jesus' name and would ask us to join them in that sin, then we need to have nothing to do with them. We need to rebuke that and run away from it. We need to flee from, from sin, and instead we need to contend for the faith. We need to do what Jude is going to tell us to do in verse 20. Look down at verse 20. He says, You, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. We need to build ourselves up in our most holy faith. That's for everybody, no matter where you are. If this contains what our faith is, then we need to build ourselves up in this. We need to keep on learning this. We need to keep on saturating ourselves in this, and we need to keep on applying this to our life so that we would obey it. We build ourselves up in our most holy faith. And we don't do that alone. We don't fight alone. Maybe it's because we just had the membership class last weekend, but all I could think while I was reading the book of Jude was thank you, God, for the church. Thank you, God, that Jude did not write this to individual Christians, telling each of us to just try harder, to fight harder. He wrote it to a church. And he says, fight together. Contend together. Build yourselves up together. I thought about what this means for our elders and what elders do. Elders are our shepherds. And Acts chapter 20 says that the shepherds are there to guard us from wolves. Isn't that a great reason to join the church so that you would be under the shepherding care of men that actually know what the faith is and know what false teaching is and will kick it out before it can devour us, carry us away? But it's more than just elders. This church is filled with strong Christians who are built up in their faith. So if you're here and you say, I'm weak. I'm weak in my faith. I I recognize now that I am in danger. Look around you. There are a lot of people who have been fighting for a long time. And they will be happy to fight with you. They will be happy to meet with you. They will be happy to study this with you, to teach you what this says so that you too can be built up because you need to build yourself up. But they're also happy to keep a watch over you, to tell you when you're wandering away, when you are getting too close to those reefs and you need to make a hard left. And lastly, to you strong Christians, to those of you that know that you've got the goods, give it away. Don't be content that you have fought the faith for 30, 40 years and then, and then now you can just kind of sit back. No, look around and realize that there are a lot of weak sheep in here. And those wolves are looking for them. 
You need to exercise a careful watch over them. Look around and just ask somebody that you don't know how they're doing. Is there anything that you can help them with? People in your community group, can you take them out to coffee and and check on them and make sure that they are growing? Is there anything that you can do to pray for them? Is there any misunderstanding that they have? Does their marriage need help? Do Do they need help in parenting? Do they need help at work? Be with them. Fight with them. Fight together. It's how we contend for the faith. Once for all delivered to the saints. And we just do that over and over and over again while we wait. We wait until that day when Jesus does come. And we know that we are spared from his wrath because of his grace. We know that we will marvel in that day because of his mercy. It's in that hope that we wait. So let's pray. God, I do pray that you would help us to fight this faith together, that we would contend for the faith, that we wouldn't compromise, that we wouldn't drift, but that we would know what you have taught us and what you have commanded us. God, I pray if there's anyone here that has wandered off from the path of the gospel, or maybe they've never been on the path, they are at the bottom of that cliff of legalism or licentiousness. God, I pray that you would save them. I pray that you would help them to repent and to believe the true gospel. And Lord, for all of us, I pray that you would help us to fight together, that we would build ourselves up in our most holy faith. And Lord, we do pray that you would come quickly. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let us stand to respond, to remember who's really in charge. And who is on the throne and who will come again to judge the living and the dead. Lo, he comes with clouds descending, once for favored sinners slain. Thousand, thousand saints attending, hail the king. Who comes again? Oh, he comes with clouds descending, once for favored sinners slain. Thousand, thousand saints attending, hail the King who comes again. Expected 
praying we can sing soon. You guys can be seated. This is a fight. We are not fighting alone. So I am so grateful for you, church. I know that you are fighting for me. I know that there are so many of you who are watching out for me and, and praying for me. We want to pray for you. We want to help you as a church. If there is anything that we can do at all, please don't hesitate to talk to us. There will be somebody outside that you can talk to. You can email us. We want to be with you. And I want you to be with one another. So maybe even this morning as, as you stand up and you make your way to the parking lot, just look around and see people that you know or people that you don't know and just check on them. Check on how they're doing. Maybe when you're in the parking lot, you can take a few minutes and, and just stand and pray for one another to hear about struggles or, or things to celebrate. But, but just because there's weird restrictions right now does not mean that we can't use this Sunday morning time to fight together. So I would encourage you to do that. And if you're in this room or you're listening right now and, and some of what we've talked about has convicted you, you say, I want to know more about walking on that narrow path. I feel like I've fallen into one or two of these errors. We want to help you. We want to explain that to you. We, we want to even pray with you and lead you in accepting Jesus as not only your Savior, but also as your King, as your Lord, that you would follow him in obedience. And then we want to commit to helping you walk in that process. So if you have questions about that, please, again, don't leave without talking to us or to talking, about, talking to somebody here about that. Now, as you go, I'll leave you with these, the closing verses from the book of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.